The aeroplane, or airplane if you're American, is obviously one of the greatest inventions of all time. Oddly though, while I think it may be one of our greatest technological achievements, I would argue it's not as revolutionary as inventions such as the automobile, train, or even canals. Sure, I can get a return ticket to Dortmund, Germany for just over £70 and get there in just over an hour. I can fly to the other side of the world for just under £1,000 in under a day flying non-stop. I mean, imagine that 150 years ago. Indeed, the thing people must fret about when trying to get somewhere far away is not actually getting there. It's, have you got your passport? Have you got enough time to go through duty free? Or whether you'll be able to get your hand luggage onto the flight. That you can travel so quickly and with such speed is incredible. At 10,000 meters in the air, you can have a drink and some food and do it in such comfort, it's almost silly how easy it really is. And for our purposes, it did lead to great developments for humanity. Human flight has been a dream of humans for millennia, and flight attempts are well attested to. And once it was achieved, an aviation craze began, the likes of which we haven't seen in this era. The aviation era was an incredibly exciting time, but modern flight still has a few problems which stop it being quite as great as the car or the train. It's a real arsehole to go and fly. You have to get to an airport out of town, go through security, wait around for a few hours before getting onto your flight and then wait to take off before finally getting into the sky. You might need a visa to fly or other documents and it's not quite as easy as getting in a car or getting on the train. The pain we all feel going to the airport and the general inconvenience of getting there means for most of us we only go a maximum of a few times a year. Perhaps a few times more if you're an American where domestic flights are slightly more common, but I'm sure you get what I'm meaning. Trains, however, did lead to rapid changes not just in travel, but in society in general. The aeroplane hasn't quite had that impact, but still the impact has been immense. We can live way outside London and commute to work and then go on holiday to Spain but we can't really live in Spain and commute to Manchester for work. We can't really live in LA but work in Chicago. We could go to Chicago every now and again for work, but not quite every day. If we all had an aeroplane in our garage, we could use it as easily as the car. Or if there was flight infrastructure like the train station, it might be easier, but that's a long way off. That's why I've put the plane at only 63 and not higher up. Of course, the ability to get to Australia in less than a day, compared to three months before, has all of these sort of effects you might not have thought of before. The plane has had a massive impact allowing for this globalised world and international travel. It's not just the ability to travel, but all the unintended consequences that such quick travel brings. I recently read a book on the history of the English cricket team. If you know anything about cricket, you'll know it's the only sport where the highest level of play is in the international arena. International cricket is everything. Domestic club sides aren't really that important. Cricket was set up as a game of empire, so it's natural that its highest level of play is England versus India, not Mumbai versus Chennai. 
The international cricket format was developed so a country would literally tour another. A great way in the Victorian age for the gentlemen of the day to visit the colonies and travel all around it. So in the pre-1950s, a touring party from England would be selected and travel to the country where they were scheduled to tour. Cricket being the sport of empire, it was played only in the colonies. So when you went on tour to South Africa, the Caribbean, Australia, New Zealand or India, this would take weeks to get there by boat. And when you toured, you would literally tour the entire country. You would visit all four corners and play against local sides, club sides, county or state sides, and then intermingled with these international matches. You would tour the country and its cricketing population. The legendary Invincibles Australia 1948 touring team with Sir Don Bradman, statistically the greatest sportsman of all time, visited England from the 28th of April to September the 28th. It took them a month to get to Britain, with a stopover in Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka. They played five matches against England and then toured the English counties and even played Scotland. Now, they still play the five matches against England, but might only play one other county side as a warm-up match, compared to the 29 other matches they played on that 48 tour. These tours from the 1950s generally declined and got shorter and shorter in length. Today, they're little more than a month or two long. Why? I had always assumed it was a player's wanting shorter tours, or the public being less interested. But that's not really the reason. I'd of course love to watch Australia play Lancashire or Yorkshire. In actuality, the jet airliner made it possible for these touring parties to get where they wanted to in only a day or so, meaning it was far easier to have a short tour to somewhere halfway around the world and then have another tour in say the West Indies in March and April, before visiting England, meaning there was more money in it for everybody. The aeroplane with the jet airliner did result in the world getting ever smaller and more interconnected. People could quite easily live in several countries in a year. We can go on holiday anywhere we want. Money, rather than time, is the key. The world is far quicker now because of the aeroplane. Imagine a pop star needing a month to get across the Atlantic to tour America. The modern day tennis player would not be able to play anywhere near the amount of tournaments they do so many things we take for granted would change. One other theoretical thing I would like to mention is something I thought about while researching the episode. I did wonder whether some things are quantitatively harder to invent. Is inventing the aeroplane a more difficult thing to do than invent radio, for example? What I think makes flight harder to invent is the skills required. The Wright brothers had some knowledge of business the biology of birds and how they fly, a strong scientific mind and strong engineering ability. Could Marconi have invented the aeroplane? I would doubt it. Is this why things are now harder to invent? Do we need more cross-disciplinary education to continue to invent great things, when our education systems are so narrow that people don't learn high-level theoretical physics and engineering along with business skills? For example, once the electromagnetic spectrum was discovered, the radio developed very quickly. While we've known about the possibility for flight, as long as we've had the evolutionary ability to see. We can see birds flying. 
The aeroplane and precursors were thought about for millennia before being invented. Before the Wright brothers came along, the flying machine was still a very long way away from being a successful heavier-than-air fixed-wing manned flight. But once the initial hurdle was overcome, the discovery of how you fly a heavier-than-air machine and regain that empirical knowledge, the rest was quite straightforward, and the aeroplane-making industry boomed and developed and improved so rapidly that only in 15 years after its invention you had a transatlantic flight. If something is that hard to invent, should we not think of it as an invention? Because it's not just a simple task of putting a few technologies together, it's a whole scale epistemological attempt to discover new information. The Wrights may not have only invented the first heavier than air plane, but discovered the key to flying a heavier than air object, with all the parameters of lift, power, downforce, gravity, and any other force that is involved. And that is work they spent a long time doing. They discovered what it takes to get something to fly. Once that information was gleaned, the rest seemed relatively straightforward. That's what makes the Wrights unique in history. They discovered and invented something. More than a scientist who discovers, or an engineer who invents, they are both. The invention itself has to be one of the greatest ever. The dreams of people throughout history was to fly like a bird, and the plane allowed for that. So how were the dreams of antiquity to the early 20th century achieved? How did the aeroplane develop? The classics littered with stories of aviation attempts of failure. Whether it's Icarus flying too close to the sun, Deladius escaping from Crete's King Minos by constructing a pair of feathered wings, or Chinese folklore about flying. Indian Sanskrit texts about mechanical wings and American native cultures depict flying in many different cultures and many different forms of human flight. The idea of humans flying is an innate part of our fascination with the natural world. We see birds flying and we must have got jealous. It looks such a wonderful thing to do. So where does our story begin? Well, it starts with humans' earliest experiments of flight. Humans began to experiment with aeronautics early in our history. The sling, spear and bow and arrow and boomerang all needed some knowledge of flight and the physical world. But the most logical time to start our story is of course with China. The Chinese kite appeared in around the 2nd century BC, where it was used for measuring distances. By the 6th century AD, this had evolved into signalling. Emperor Wu used a kite to send for help during a siege as the enemy army tried to shoot down a kite with arrows. The invention of the kite was notable for its use of air and how the air could be worked and used. In the same century, prisoners of the Chinese emperor were fitted with kites and forced to jump off cliffs to see if they could fly. One prisoner, Yuan Huang Tu, actually managed to ride the kite to safety, perhaps the first ever man to fly. He was then executed. To Europe, and Brother Ilmar, a Benedictine monk of Malmesbury Abbey in England, also attempted flight. Almar fixed wings to his hands and feet and launched himself from the top of the tower at Malmesbury Abbey. His attempt resulted in broken legs and disabled him for life. He flew an estimated 200 metres and was airborne for 15 seconds. Brave! But throwing yourself on the top of an abbey and hoping you'll fly 
is hardly the cleverest thing to do. As science improved, two things came in the 13th and 14th century that would start to affect human-powered flight, gunpowder and the drawstring helicopter. The first allowed projectiles to fly ballistically, while the drawstring helicopter was basically a toy that allowed it to fly aerodynamically. Rockets appeared in European armies in the 13th century and was noted for being the first real human projectile used by humans. While the drawstring helicopter worked in a similar way to a boomerang, today we would see it as a crude propeller or rotor. Ideas of flight was a Renaissance-era dream, the most famous example being Leonardo's ornithopter, but his designs, as ever they were, were interesting and, as interesting as they were, misjudged. Leonardo underestimated the power required to produce lift. By the middle of the 18th century, and the European scientific revolution was in full flight, and in 1783, this is where real human flight began. Two French brothers and a scientist both invented the human-carrying balloon at the same time. The two brothers, Joseph and Etienne Montegolfer, invented the balloon in 1783, and then Jacques-Alexander César Charles also invented it in the same year. It's not unusual that disparate developments happen simultaneously in technologies, because we've seen it several times before. It's quite the coincidence, however, for pretty much the exact same technology to be developed in the same city and the same year and almost at the same time of the year. The two brothers were middle-aged businessmen and looking for a hit, but all their innovation attempts resulted in them alienating their work colleagues and the business collapsing. They had many interests in the technology of the time, and a cousin made Joseph aware of work in thermodynamics. Joseph states he invented the idea of a hot air balloon flight in early November 1782. As a cosy fire warmed the room, he examined a wall print showing the Spanish failed siege of Gibraltar and had a hit of inspiration. If fire carried particles and ash up a flute, might it not be able to carry soldiers over the earth and onto besieged fortresses? This got Joseph to work right away while Etienne was desperate to get started with something new. The two brothers got to work and by December 1782 had gotten a balloon to fly 300 metres into the air, in full view of an amazed group of people. The two brothers applied for the French Royal Academy requesting a formal demonstration. They said their experiment might be useful for experiments on electricity in clouds and even transporting troops. They were, however, ignored. On the 4th of June 1783, they demonstrated a 35 diameter balloon to the astonishment of onlookers as it rose 3,000 foot into the air. Now, it was time for Paris. Meanwhile in Paris, two Academy members were developing their own versions of the balloon. In 1766, Henry Cavendish had isolated hydrogen and two others had shown that hydrogen could be used as a lifting gas. The brothers had used this but it was too expensive for them to use. For the Parisian elite, there was no such issues. The most prominent of these elite was Jacques-Alexandre César Charles. Charles was determined to use hydrogen and began to raise money to fund his experiments. Nicknamed the Globe and made using rubber brought back from South America in 1736, 
It was much smaller than the brother's balloon, as the lifting power of hydrogen was ten times that of normal air. Near where the Eiffel Tower now sits, Charles demonstrated at 5pm, after a weather delay, the balloon starting to lift. The sight was one of the great spectacles of the age, seeing a body leave the earth and fly. The sight was so great that the French ladies, wearing the newest fashion of the day, didn't mind getting soaking wet in the rain as they watched it rise. In the audience that day was Benjamin Franklin and a teenage John Quincy Adams, future President of the United States. When somebody asked Franklin what the point of the balloon was, he replied, quote, What is the use of a newborn baby? Close quotes. Seeing this impressive display, the two brothers got back to work and created a 70-foot-tall balloon, which in a trial run lifted eight men off the ground, though tethered. The next day was another rainy and miserable one, resulting in a mass of watery fabric all over the ground. But less than a week later, and the brothers had a new balloon. The Marshal at the Versailles was launched, and in the audience was Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, and 100,000 French men, women and children. In a basket was a sheep, duck and rooster. The balloon rose and drifted for two and a half miles before landing onto the floor eight minutes after liftoff. Unlike the space chimps of the 1960s, nobody knows what happened to these animals. Most likely, they were eaten. But the biggest race was still to come. Who could be the first to display manned balloon flight? The two brothers in mid-October 1783 launched Jean-Francois Pilliet de Rosaire into the air in a balloon. He rose 50 feet into the air, but still tethered to the ground. On Friday, November 21st, 1783, he left Earth with no tether. At 1.54pm, members of the Academy and Ben Franklin watched him fly into the air. He flew almost 250 feet into the air when the spectators started to realise the momentous event they were witnessing. The balloon went 3,000 feet into the air and could be seen by all of Paris. The balloon descended gently to the outskirts of Paris with two-thirds of the supplies still available. And there was the first human flight, a mere one year and 17 days after the first experiment. Now the attention turned to Charles. What could a hydrogen balloon do? On December the 1st, Charles's manned flight began. This balloon was more advanced than the brothers, and it began to rise at 1.30pm. It rose 2,000 feet into the air, and Charles noted that the flight was a blissful delight. When the flight landed, Charles launched the balloon into the air again, and then reached 9,000 feet in 10 minutes. He noted he was so cold his fingers couldn't hold his pen. Then he had a sudden violent pain in his right ear and jaw. The first ever case of the change in pressure and expansion of the air in the ear. Something we've all felt when flying. 1783 came to an end, and with it, one of the most remarkable years of invention. The balloon, for the first time, allowed humans to look down on the earth. One of those inventions that changes how we see the earth. Paris, the great metropolis of the day, must have looked so small. In 1784, the ballooning craze went to other countries too. Milan first, and then with Franklin's influence it went to America, then Edinburgh, and then London. 
On January the 7th, 1785, the first cross-channel flight took place. Not a smooth journey, but a momentous one. Within two decades, balloonists were reaching 23,000 feet, and by the middle of the 19th century, they began to use primitive oxygen-breathing apparatus. Balloonists were close to reaching the stratosphere. Despite being designed partly for use during wartime, the balloon was hardly ever used for this. It got some action during the French Revolutionary Wars, but when the balloon school closed in 1802, it was basically ignored as a piece of warfare until the American Civil War. During the Civil War, the balloon experienced a military renaissance. Demonstrated to President Lincoln in June 1861, it impressed all who saw it, and so it began to be used in action. The first ascension was on the 30th of August off a ship, making the ship the first ever use of an aircraft carrier. In August 1862, a balloon flew with ships to observe a bombardment of Confederate forts in probably the first ever carrier battle group. The Confederate military leaders, realising the asymmetry of this new front, shifted gear and started to try and shoot down the balloons. But this proved difficult as it was out of range, and shooting something so far up with no weapons designed for that was probably more manpower effort than it was worth. But by 1863, and balloons were no longer used by the Union, to the surprise of the Confederate leaders, who thought they had great potential for observation. The North's Balloon Corps was disbanded before Gettysburg. Perhaps the most famous use of balloons during the 19th century was in Paris, famously used after the Battle of Sudan. There was still much public exhibition and exploration of ballooning during the 19th century, with photography being experimented with. One impressive balloon in 1863 was called Legant, and it had a two-level cabin with toilet, storeroom, and photo studio and printing press. But in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871, one of the most interesting wars I think we've never studied, because it's a fascinating look into developments in technology, and how the Prussians used all different types of technology compared to the French. During the war, the French lost very quickly, and Napoleon III surrendered at Sedan, and renounced the throne. Despite being surrounded by German troops, Paris refused to surrender. Balloonists rushed to support the rebels, and they established a balloon postal service to fly over the Prussian lines. The balloon post seized the imagination, and everything in the city was searched to try and find anything that could fly. 88% of the postal service got out of the city, meaning 1.5 million letters managed to escape during the siege. Bismarck even set up the world's first high-angle anti-aircraft gun to try and take them down. Despite all this ballooning about, there was no ability to steer the aircraft. The idea of steerable airships had taken off with various proponents suggesting rudders and propulsion. Ideas of this go back to the earliest balloon flights, but nothing had been done about it. By 1850, a young French engineer, Henry Giffard, built a 144-foot-long airship powered by three horsepower steam engines driving an 11-foot, three-bladed propeller. In September 1852, it launched, being the first steerable flight in history. The flight averaged about six miles per hour, 
the same as a horse-drawn wagon. Giffard planned a 600-metre airship, but it was never launched. Over the 1870s and 1880s, airships were developed with a large degree of success. In 1901, Alberto Santos Dumont, a Brazilian playboy, arrived in Paris. In 1900, a wealthy financier had put up 100,000 francs to anybody who could fly from the HQ of the Aero Club de France to the Eiffel Tower and back in less than 30 minutes. It was a lot of money for just seven miles. On October the 19th, Santos Dumont set off. A third of the way there, his engine stopped working, forcing him to walk onto the keel of the balloon without a harness and make repairs. He made the journey in 30 minutes and 40 seconds, but so impressed was everybody that he was given the prize money anyway. Santos did a lot of work to develop the military airship. He is revered in Brazil, with the second airport in Rio being named after him. His work inspired the most famous of all airship pioneers, Ferdinand Graf von Zeppelin. Zeppelin was on leave from the army in 1863 in America to observe the Civil War, and took a balloon flight when he talked about the problems of steering. He was told that a solution could be a long, thin balloon with a big rudder. Zeppelin returned to Germany and served in the Austro-Prussian War and Franco-German War. However, Zeppelin encountered much enmity with the Kaiser, and so with the rank of Lieutenant General, he retired. He went into his passion, building a steerable airship. Not being technical enough, he got professional engineers to design it, and scraped together 800,000 marks to help design it. The technicians began to construct the first of his signature cigar-shaped Luftschiff Zeppelins. The LZ-1 was 420 feet in length, and the largest airship yet built. On the 2nd of July 1900, the airship left the air and returned safely to the ground. Nobody knew the future of the airship, but over the next decade he would struggle to find more advances in the airship. And while there is some developments of the airship, famously culminating in the Hindenburg incident, I frankly found it a bit boring, especially as we all know it had limited impact and of course ended in disaster. So, as this is a long episode anyway, I'll just skip over this part and towards the more interesting areas, winged flight. So, winged flight, which is probably what we imagine an aeroplane to be, begins with aeronautics theory. Aeronautics theory was based originally from Newton's investigations into gravity and the like, which was still the base of physics at the time, and even now, I suppose. By the beginning of the 18th century, there was a group of scientists looking at ship design, hydraulics and ballistics, which would lead to greater understandings around the eventual design of the aeroplane. However, mathematical models of the time suggested that the wings needed for an aeroplane were so impractical that it was impossible. Later, Francis Wenham showed that it was indeed possible, as proved in his first wind tunnel test. I'm not going to go into the full history of aeronautical design, though it's obviously vastly important for anybody looking to make a heavier-than-air object fly. But one thing about aeronautics is that it's been noted that aeronautics during this time was mostly theoretical, with no practical applications until a long time later. George Cayley was perhaps the most important person in the history of the aeroplane pre-Wright Brothers. He is universally acknowledged as the conceptualizer of the practical aeroplane and the father of aeronautics. 
Born into a moderately prosperous Yorkshire family in 1773, he first expressed an interest in aviation in 1792, and his work is generally listed in four periods. His first period was interested in the public craze over ballooning. Then he studied mechanical flight by aeroplane, and in the study of projectiles for artillery from 1810 to 1820, he studied airships. His last period of discovery was researching aeronautical studies of airships and aircraft, artillery shells, vertical takeoffs and landings. Cayley blended theoretical study with experimentation. Cayley's experiments are all the more impressive when you consider that much of the prior knowledge he was working with was misleading or wrong. In 1799, Cayley was the first to recognise that lift, thrust and drag were separate forces, each requiring separate approaches to overcome them. In 1800, he designed the first modern aeroplane, a body, a cockpit, a fixed-wing design and a tail. Obviously crude by today's standards, but a huge step forward then. In 1804, he constructed a small glider, four foot long, this glider flew at Brompton Hall near Scarborough. For the first time, a winged craft flew smoothly through the air. In 1809, a child, whose name is lost to history, flew a few yards, showing that an aeroplane could theoretically fly. During the 19th century, there were other attempts by Cayley. Unlike previous attempts, Cayley showed that the wing should not be used as the means of propulsion, but merely to generate lift. He initiated his idea to use a steam engine to get the craft to take off. Cayley proposed a 30 horsepower steam engine, but struggled to find the investors to build it. Despite this, he did design another heavier than air glider in 1853, flown by his coachman, who immediately after gave his notice, saying he'd been hired to drive, not to fly. Cayley was the man who linked the balloon era to the fixed wing era. Cayley's work resulted in the setting up of the Aeronautical Society of Great Britain in 1866, which by the mid-1880s had resulted in real and substantial gains testing models and theories. Despite the British taking the lead in aeronautical science and Germany's development of propulsion with the development of the internal combustion engine, it was back in France where the construction of actual flying machines would take place. As we talked about in the episode on canals, France, following the Franco-Prussian War, was a devastated country. Young men of France, obviously not all of them, had set up the Société Générale de Navigation Ariane, including Alphonse Penel. Penel had improved on the helicopter using a rubber cord which propelled a model about 30 foot into the air. The experiment once again proved another thing. An aeroplane could theoretically fly. This then shifted thought to other areas. Could an aeroplane be built with enough power to carry a human and an operator to control it? This would be the dominant question in aviation until 1903. Penel would go on to develop an idea for a full-size aeroplane, but ill health and a crippling illness led him to commit suicide at the age of 30. If he hadn't died, then there's a good chance France could have followed up the balloon with the first aeroplane. The next French pioneer of aviation is Clermont Agnès Adair. Coming from southern France, he showed great technical expertise from a young age. Following the French defeat in 1870, he thought France would only be safe if it could offset German land power. 
a visionary, though not a successful one, he said that, quote, military aviation shall become all-powerful and control the destiny of nations, close quotes. Through the 1870s and 1880s, he was unsuccessful in getting anywhere, but in 1890 he produced the Eole, a bird-like design with a gothic fantasy look about it. It had 50-foot drooping wings and a four-bladed tractor propeller affixed to the engine. But with the pilot supposed to sit behind the boiler, he had no forward vision. The first completed aeroplane, it had a 20-horsepower steam engine, which produced one horsepower per 10 pounds of engine weight, a remarkable figure for the time. His first attempt to fly the plane on October the 9th, 1890, was the first ever attempt in history to fly a powered human-carrying plane. A small group of onlookers watched as Adair managed to accelerate to lift-off speed and skim the earth of a height of about a foot for 50 metres. No photograph exists of the flight, but Adair was lucky. If it had flown, he wouldn't have been able to land. So was this the first ever flight? There was a general consensus that three criteria needed to be met. It must be powered, sustained and controlled. Adair met the first, powered. It came close but missed the second and failed the third. Adair later worked for the French government to try and build an aeroplane. But a lot of the work was done in secrecy and his continuing failure resulted in funding being cut. Humans tend to be deterministic. It helps us to explain the world to ourselves. We think that the Wright brothers were going to invent the first plane because they were always going to be so. This is of course not true. We all know this. But we find determinist ideas hard to shake. It helps us process events. We know the world is anarchical. Anybody can do anything. You don't need permission or a narrative to suggest you can or can't do anything. But the French aviators by most measures should have been the first to develop the plane. They had the expertise, government backing, the legacy of aviation pioneering, pioneering work on the combustion engine, strong aeronautical infrastructures and even a national laboratory. Yet they didn't really get too close to developing it. Richard Hallion says of this that, quote, rarely in the history of technology has greater opportunity or technical acumen squandered so wantonly, close quotes. Developments therefore shifted towards the Anglo-American world. Hiram Stevens Maxim, an American inventor working in Britain, had already proved his worth. On the 2nd of September 1898, just outside Khartoum in Sudan, General Kitchener awaited battle. The British had 20,000 troops, Sudan had 60,000, but Britain had the first Maxim gun, the world's first automatic machine gun. Winston Churchill later recalled that the Maxim guns pulsated feverishly. 11,000 Sudanese troops died and 11,000 were wounded. Britain lost only 48. Perhaps the most one-sided military victory in history. Here in Maxim, however, was not only interested in military equipment, but aviation too. During the 1880s and 1890s, he developed numerous friendships with wealthy investors and studied aeronautics. He built a test site that included a large hangar and a huge whirling arm to test wing shapes. He designed an 8,000 pound biplane to test rig everything. His attention to detail and rigorous measurements resulted in his designs having a few differences with that of other pioneers. He preferred steel tubes to wood or aluminium 
He undertook many trials to find the best design for the propellers, and spent a long time perfecting lift and propulsion, to the extent that his critics said he didn't care about controlling the vehicle. He had his rig on a rail track, so it couldn't be lifted more than two foot into the air. Due to Maxim's prominence, his experiments gained a lot of attention. He was visited by numerous tourists and luminaries. Maxim's most famous experiment took place on July the 31st, 1894. He ran the boilers to maximum pressure, and under a full head of steam, the rig accelerated down the track, so much so that it threw its crew off balance. It did 600 feet at 40 miles per hour, and the rig rose completely off the ground. The crew found themselves floating in the air. It was the last experiment though, as soon after the landlord sold the plot of land he was using. As the 19th century was closing out and approaching the 20th century, as we've seen the idea of proper flight was getting closer, but realistic attempts were still a long way off. In Germany, Otto Linnethal was perhaps the closest person to flying before the Wright brothers. A keen student of birds flying, he began in the 1890s an aggressive program of flight research using gliders. These gliders he used were based on trial and error. He made 18 flights over a five-year period. Perhaps the biggest contribution was that he changed the perception of flight itself. It was no longer about getting in the air, but being able to control the craft, something Wilbur Wright pointed out two years before Kitty Hawk. Linenthal, on the 9th of August, 1886, flew once again. Aged 48, he flew for about 15 seconds and sailed gently down using the swinging in his legs to control the flight of the glider. Once he landed, he thought he would go for another flight. Like he did before, Linenthal flew down the slope, but a sudden gust made the nose rise and rise until the nose was vertical. Linenthal tried to swing his body, but the nose was still vertical until the gust stopped. The glider stopped and nosedived 50 yards. Lillenthal was rushed to hospital, but died the day after. His repetitive flights had made him famous in Europe and America, as there were many photos published of his flights. We go back now to something we've already talked about in the episode on canals. In March 1880, Ferdinand Lesseps was in the USA, being met by the great and good of New York. Also there that night, was Octave Chanute, an American who was brought up by French parents and felt at home in a European setting. He was one of the greatest engineers of his day, having been the chief engineer on the Erie Railway. After reaching the top of his field when he reached his late fifties, he turned his attention towards aviation. And when Octave Chanute turned his attention to something, he really turned his attention to something. He became a one-man industry trying to arrange Maxim and Lilenthal to come to America. He wrote articles and organized a conference in Chicago that drew together most of the major American figures and some international figures in the aviation industry. From aviation experts like Samuel Langley to Edward Huffaker to John P. Holland, the inventor of the submarine, F.A. Pratt, the inventor of the Lincoln milling machine, and Thomas Edison, who needs no introduction. Chanute arranged for the publication of the conference proceedings and enunciated his own thoughts on flight at the conference opening. He stated that so far flight had been seen as a failure, but aviation still held great promise. 
1895, he turned towards experimenting with flying and turned his attention towards trying to improve Lilienthal's work, eventually succeeding just a few weeks after Lilienthal's death. After experimenting with a triplane approach, Chanute and Augustus Herring chose the biplane configuration as the best approach. August 1896 saw both the death of Lilienthal and the birth of American aviation. Imagine a montage in your head like the first Godfather film, where the death of Lilienthal and at the same time the birth of aviation happened at the same time. 1896 would pass the torch across the Atlantic and towards America. The only thing now needed was for somebody, or some people, to take all the work that had been done thus far in aviation, put it together, make some improvements, and make aviation a real thing. The Wright brothers are perhaps the most famous inventors of anything in history. No other invention is as well credited to somebody as the aeroplane is to the Wright brothers. Marconi has his doubters, as does Alexander Graham Bell, Edison had a team of helpers, and very little is known about Gutenberg. I wonder who is the more famous, Bell, Edison, or the Wrights? I think the Wrights probably win out due to their story. The American folk hero angle makes them legendary in their home country, which of course makes them famous worldwide. The two brothers, Orville and Wilbur, were noted for their similarities in certain ways. They both lacked an interest in fame, but Wilbur moved at a tremendous pace in everything he did. Orville was more normal. Wilbur was more serious and studious. Orville was known for a poor memory, whereas Wilbur was an elephant and never forgot. The two lived at home with their father, a preacher, and their sister, Catherine, the most sociable of the lot and the only college graduate. The mother of the family had died in 1889 from tuberculosis. They lived in the rather unfashionable city of Dayton, the fifth largest in Ohio. Ohio in the middle of the 19th century had seen large growth, especially Dayton, as the railroads had helped to increase its connectivity. The family was studious, but growing up, Wilbur was the father's favorite. He was a star athlete, and high grades meant he might have even gone to Yale if it wasn't for getting attacked with a hockey stick knocking out most of his front teeth. Recent scholarship has found that the boy who attacked Wilbur was Oliver Krupp Hogg, who would later become the most infamous murderer in Ohio's history, killing his mother, father and brother, and executed in 1906 with dozens of other possible murders to his name. In 1892, bicycle mania hit the Midwest, and both became involved in a YMCA-sponsored racing league and proved their skills as mechanics. Then, at Wilbur's suggestion in the spring of 1893, they opened their famed bicycle business called the Wright Cycle Exchange, where they repaired bicycles and sold them. Business started well, but competition quickly caught up, and the bicycle business proved less profitable, and so Wilbur thought of going to college. In the summer of 1896, Orville, aged 25, came down with typhoid and for days lay in bed, close to death. The family doctor thought nothing could be done, but after a month in bed, Orville got better and soon managed to sit up. Two weeks later, he could get out of bed. During this time, Wilbur had been reading to Orville about Otto Lilienthal's death, who had recently just died, of course. He read much of it to Orville out loud. 
News of Lilienthal's death was big news in America, with much photography of his exploits, and it was especially popular in the USA. Lilienthal's experiments were based from bird flight, and the Wright brothers had already books on that in their house, and were keen readers on anything, including science and the natural world. They continued to read more about bird flight, and in 1897, their bicycle business shop improved, meaning they could move to a bigger location. While the automobile started to appear in Dayton, built locally by a friend called Roos, Orville thought he and Wilbur should build one of their own automobiles, but for Wilbur it held no appeal. Nobody really knows what precipitated the move towards flight. Perhaps it was Lilienthal's death in an industry that had always fascinated the two. But between 1896 and 1899, the two brothers moved from an interest in bicycles towards a new venture. On May the 30th, 1899, it was Decoration Day, now called Memorial Day, and Wilbur sat down at the family table to write one of the most important letters of all time. Quote, I have been interested in the problem of mechanical and human flight ever since I was a boy. I constructed a number of bars of various sizes after the style of Cayley's and Penno's machine. My observations since have only convinced me more firmly that human flight is possible and practical. I am about to begin a systematic study of the subject in preparation for practical work, to which I expect to devote what time I can spare from my regular business. I wish to obtain such papers as the Smithsonian Institute has published on the subject, and if possible a list of other works in print in the English language." Close quotes. Wilbur was deadly serious. At the end of the letter he wrote, quote, I am an enthusiast, but not a crank, in the sense that I have some pet theories as to the proper construction of a flying machine. Close quotes. Answering was Richard Rathburn of the Smithsonian Institute. A more traditional bureaucrat may have just ignored this letter, but the 47-year-old was energetic and the perfect bureaucrat. He instructed his staff to send Mr. Wright some materials. One wonders at what stage, if ever, he realised the importance of his actions. Three weeks later, Wright received a package of materials from most of the people and theoreticians and engineers we've talked about over the past few minutes. Most helpful to the Wrights were the works of Octave Chanute. Despite the obvious dangers of experimenting with flying machines, the biggest source of damage was often the public humiliation these odd people got from going up and trying to fly. But this was a new time in America. So many things were coming out of this relatively new country. The Kodak camera, electric sewing machine, first elevator, safety razor, mousetrap, motor car, and all in the last 12 years or so. Meanwhile, Dayton, Ohio was ranked first in the entire country per population for patents. It was the Silicon Valley of the day. Today, if you came up with a crazy invention in a normal small town in the US or England, you would receive so much public laughter that you might not bother and give up. If you do the same in the Silicon Valley, there might be less stigma, further deepening the innovative nature of certain regions. The turning of the century led many to speculate about the nature of change and the technological progress everybody was witnessing. America had overtaken Europe and was outproducing Europe in many of the key indicators of technological progress, coal, iron and steel. 
while American self-confidence following the victory of the Spanish-American War showed it as a rising power. The unprecedented rate of change led some to make wild predictions. Henry Litchfield West made one prediction that if the same level of proportional increases from the 18th to 19th century in transportation is maintained, by 2000 it would take only 40 minutes to get from Washington DC to Baltimore. Essentially, he was correct. H.G. Wells said that people who knew the work of aviation pioneers will be inclined to believe that before 2000, perhaps even before 1950, safe and successful air travel will be a possibility. The Wright brothers quickly got up to speed with aeronautical terms such as equilibrium, balancing flight, lift, where air moving faster over the arched top of a wing, where it made the pressure less than under the wing, pitch, the lateral tilt of the aeroplane, front or back, or nose up and down, roll, the rotation of the wing up or down, like a boat yawking, while yaw was the direction of the flight, and the turning of the plane pointing the nose left or right. By summer 1899, above their bicycle shop, the brothers began to make their first aircraft. It was a flying kite made of split bamboo and paper, with a wingspan of five feet, using a designed octave chenute used for gliders. By early August, and Wilbur was testing the model in an open field outside of town. Orville wasn't able to attend, so just Wilbur and a few boys were there. It wasn't a perfect flight, but good enough to prove to the brothers themselves that it had worked and they could move onto a man-carrying glider. In the first letter he sent him, Wilbur wrote to Chanute asking where the optimal location was for a good testing environment, somewhere with reliable weather, but reliable winds of at least 15 miles per hour. Chanute said California or Florida could be good, but they didn't have the best ground for soft landings. Wilbur then asked the US Weather Bureau, and they provided extensive records about wind speeds. They found the best place was called Kitty Hawk in North Carolina, some 700 miles away. In the final weeks of August, the brothers built a full-size glider with two wings. In a node to Otto Linenthal, they also brought a camera. At the time, Kitty Hawk wasn't quite utterly nowhere, but it was as rural as rural can get. Fifty houses, nearly all the men fishermen, and the houses were bare, with no furniture or amenities. It was largely a self-sustaining community. They lodged with a local whose house was poor by American standards, but rich by Kitty Hawks. People around Kitty Hawk grew curious about their new visitors and the contraption they had. They assembled the glider and Wilbur was the one who would fly it. He would lie on his stomach head first in the middle of the lower wing and maintain fore and aft balance via a forward rudder. The brothers had hardly kept any records and what we know comes to us mostly through letters they sent home. The experiments began October the 3rd. By the 14th, they had been experimenting for two to four hours at a time. They were cautious about not sending the kite too high and wanted the perfect wind speed of about 15 to 20 miles per hour to experiment. After one accident, the glider was damaged, which took three days to fix. Word began to spread on what they were planning and people started to watch. While they lived on rations they bought, or local eggs, tomatoes and hot biscuits. 
They wanted a place with lots of sand for soft landing, which is why Kitty Hawk was perfect. If your town, however, is surrounded by sand, that's probably why it's so poor, as nothing can really grow. Slowly the locals grew to get more and more interested in these strange people from Ohio. With the help of a local, they dragged the glider up four miles of hill to a sand dune. On October the 19th, Wilbur made man flight one after another. Nobody knows how many, but it was a lot. 300 to 400 feet in length, at nearly 30 miles per hour. They returned home with the knowledge that their pet theories had not been knocked on its head, and they knew they would return. The machine was left to their friend Bill Tate, the man who helped them carry it up the mountain, to do with as he wanted. Tate's wife stripped it down and used the wings to make two dresses. The Wright brothers went back to their bicycle shop, and over the next eight months they planned their return to Kitty Hawk. They planned their neck glider to an improvement in every way, with the biggest difference in the details, and that the curve in the wings would be based upon Otto Lillenfall's design. They wrote of their plans to Octave Chanute, who said he would like to visit them some time, and so they agreed to meet. He arrived on the 26th of June, 1901, and what they talked about is not known, but it must have been a great honour for them to meet Chanute. By mid-June, they were far enough along with their new machine to depart for Kitty Hawk by July. They knew their bicycle shop was in the capable hands of Charlie Taylor, an Illinois farm boy. They left Dayton by train on Sunday the 7th of July, 1901. There they met up once again with their friend Bill Tate, who arranged with the owner of the Kill Devil Hills, which is where they threw themselves off to establish a hangar. They built a 16 foot by 25 foot and 6 foot in height hangar. On July the 27th, the glider was ready and the experiments began. Wilbur was to do the gliding and, after a few attempts, glided for 100 yards. To all of those watching, it was a great success. To the brothers, it was a disappointment. The glider had not done as well as the previous one. In another glide that day, the machine rose into the air as Lillenhalls had done. Wilbur kept trying to fly, but the glide had the same result every single time. They were perturbed that the wings, the exact same as Lillenthal's, were not working as they should have done. After a rebuild, they changed the wings, so it resembled their own design, and Wilbur again was able to soar through the air, as some photographs show. Later, Octave Trinute visited again, and by the time he departed two days after arriving, he was convinced the brothers were closer than anyone else he was working with to developing an aeroplane. When they left to go back to Ohio, they were downbeat. The glider had worked, but the workings of Lillenthal had proved wrong. This data was no longer gospel. The tables and data collated were, in a word, worthless. The disappointment didn't last too long, however, as the two got straight back into working on their invention, as Chanute invited Wilbur to address the Western Society of Engineers in Chicago about their experiments. On September the 18th, in Dayton, Wilbur set off for Chicago. Wilbur was no orator, and when asked whether his speech would be scientific or witty, he replied, pathetic. The speech itself is called Some Aeronautical Experiments, and it would be quoted for years to come. There were some general introductions, and then praising the predecessors, even though he'd found much of their data had been off. 
Then he proceeded to list some of the highly complicated and detailed equations and diagrams. Wilbur never mentioned in his speech that the calculations of the aforementioned predecessors were incorrect. But when he got back to Dayton, he and Orville decided to redo the aeronautical bible. Most important was to remeasure lift and drag. For three months in the bicycle store, they worked on these experiments. The brothers' results were a stunning success. It was a slow process, testing through 38 wing surfaces, for example, at various angles from 0 degrees to 45 degrees, in winds ranging up to 27 miles per hour, in a wind tunnel they made themselves. But Chanute said he was astonished by their success. By late December, their experiments were costing a lot. Chanute said he would fund their experiments, but they were unwilling to accept. They knew the importance of their work, and had gotten this far by themselves. They didn't want somebody else to help with the rest of it too. Not for another two months did they start to build their new glider again, but it appears that their experiments were starting to become more well known. In January 1902, a short notice appeared in the local paper about two aeronautical experts living locally. In August, they packed their machine, number three, and went to Kitty Hawk once again. Things at Kitty Hawk had gotten far bigger than last time, with the hangar having an impressive kitchen and new beds. The new glider had a total wingspan of 320 square feet and was the largest glider yet built by anyone. They took it to a small hill and began flying it, and it was a vast improvement over the previous one. On October the 1st, Orville, fueled by coffee, stayed up all night as the guy sat around and thought of a better control system. The rear rudder, instead of being fixed, should be hinged and movable. Wilbur liked the idea, and they fixed the rudder of two foot. Octave Chanute arrived two days later with Augustus Herring. He understood the importance of what the two were developing, and called in on Samuel Langley, who was head of the Smithsonian, on what he had seen. In the last part of testing, they increased their flying record to 600 feet and made nearly 100 glides, and vastly improved the control problem. On the 20th of October, they broke camp and made their way back home. Everything was working perfectly, and they only had one thing to do now, build a motor. Shortly after New Year, 1903, the Wright brothers sent out a letter to the manufacturers of automobile engines in seven states, asking if they could supply an off-the-shelf engine, light enough in weight, but with enough power for what they needed. The responses they received were uniform. The only engines possible were too heavy for their needs. The brothers would have to build their own engine. They had no experience with engines, but Charlie Taylor, their farm boy working in the shop, did have some. He created an engine with eight horsepower weighing only 152 pounds, and it was finished by mid-February. When it turned on, the noise and smoke it created was unbearable. Later, after a new shipment of parts from Pittsburgh, it managed to get up to 12 horsepower. After work on the propeller, which Charlie Taylor called their least appreciated development, as there was almost no literature on propeller development, the plane, called the Flyer, would have two propellers, positioned between two wings to the rear of the operator. One would turn clockwise, and the other counterclockwise. In April, Chanute was on holiday in France, after the death of his wife, and said Paris was giving great attention to the brothers' development. In a speech to the Aero Club de France, Chanute gave a great deal of information about their project, 
and wrote an article about them in which he asked Wilbur for a photo of the two. Wilbur replied he didn't have the courage to get in front of a camera himself. Can you imagine the tech icons of today saying that? Meanwhile, on July the 14th, Samuel Langley, head of the Smithsonian, was ready to test his contraption, a motor-powered airship costing $50,000 in money from the Smithsonian Institute and U.S. War Department, while Alexander Graham Bell contributed another $20,000. On the banks of the Potomac, they waited for a storm to die down. It took until the 8th of August. It went up unmanned and was lifted 1,000 feet into the air before crashing down into the river. Airship of submarine, ran the newspaper headline. By September, the riots were ready to go back to Kitty Hawk. 675 pounds of motors, frames and parts were loaded up and were soon gliding. They made 75 glides and found it even better than before. On October the 18th, a newspaper clipping came that another Langley test had failed. But the brothers wrote to both Chanute and Charlie Taylor that they were far more confident about their chances. By late November, they needed new propeller shafts, which were larger and made from steel, as the ones they were using cracked during an indoor test. Orville left on the 30th of November for Dayton to see what could be done. On the 8th of December, Langley tried again. The giant airship was launched from a catapult and it rose 60 feet straight up and then straight back down again. Orville got this news the next day while back in Dayton as he was leaving with new solid steel propeller shafts. Orville got back to Kitty Hawk at midday on Friday December the 11th and he spent the afternoon unpacking the goods. Saturday the wind was too light to make a start while Sunday of course was a day off. On Monday with all the repairs done they hauled the 605 pound flyer a quarter of a mile up the big hill where they had a 60 feet launching track. The engine started up and it scared off a couple of boys who had tagged along. There was no discussion between the two. They flipped a coin and Wilbur won, so he got between the propellers and lay flat on his stomach and they went off. But at the end of the track Wilbur made a mistake. He pulled too hard on the rudder and sent the flyer surging upwards. To compensate he nosedived it straight down, but too abruptly, and the machine hit the sand. You would have thought they'd have been distraught, but they were elated. The motor and launching device had proved reliable, and the damage was only minor. Repairs took two days, and by the 17th they hung a bedsheet on the side of their shed to signal they needed help, and several men came up. The men hauled the flyer back to the launching track. It was now Orville's turn, and the brothers shook hand. Wilbur, now so into photography that they sold some of their store, had an advanced camera on hand. He positioned the camera on its wooden tripod and told one of the people watching to squeeze the rubber ball to trip the shutter as the flyer passed the point. Orville positioned himself on the stomach at the controls and the machine started down the track. At 10.35, Orville removed the rope restraining the flyer and it headed forward. At the end of the track was John Daniels, who had never operated a camera. He snapped the shutter shut to take one of the most famous and important photos of all time, which isn't a bad first photo to take. The flyer rose, dropped down, rose, bounced and dipped again. The flyer flew 120 feet in 12 seconds. But those 12 seconds may have been 
some of the most important we'll cover in this series. Man had flown. Next, Wilbur took a turn and went 175 feet and then 852 feet in 59 seconds. There was talk of continuing to fly, but then a gust of wind caught the flyer and dumped it into the sand. It was a total wreck. They went back to Kitty Hawk and sent a telegram. Quote, Success, four flights, Thursday morning, all against 21 mile wind, started from level, with engine power alone average speed, through air, 31 miles, longest, 57 seconds, informed press, home for Christmas. Close quotes. This flight was the first in which a piloted machine took off under its own power into the air in full flight, sailed forward with no loss of speed, and landed at a point as high as it started. Langley's experiments with the Smithsonian had cost a total of $70,000. The brothers had done it for $1,000. With their sister Catherine, they had a routine about how they would inform the local paper. The local reporter read the telegram and was uninterested, saying 57 seconds was not news. The telegram was then intercepted by the Norfolk Virginian pilot, who said that it was a three mile long flight and they soared 60 feet. According to the report, Wilbur exclaimed, Eureka, upon it flying. Similar variations appeared in the Washington Post and the New York Times, but the event did not erupt around the nation. It appeared as a news item and then disappeared. The brothers went back to the bicycle shop as they continued to fund more experiments. They then chose somewhere new, nearby, to experiment, the Huffman Prairie. They allowed the press to watch, with their only concern now being espionage. On May the 26th, they made a start with all the controls of the flight too, rising eight feet into the air. Not that impressive. For the next three months, they struggled to replicate the first flyer. Then, on the 13th of August, out of nowhere, Wilbur flew over a thousand feet. But nobody was paying attention to them anymore. They had become a joke in their own town. They then decided to focus flying without wind assistance. They designed and built a catapult powered only by gravity. The catapult was a huge success. Wilbur with catapult could fly half a mile and did a half circle turn. There was still no public interest. The publisher of the Dayton Daily News later said in his autobiography that he didn't send a reporter because he didn't believe the stories. Amox Ives Root, who published a trade journal called Gleanings, in B culture had begun to correspond with the Wrights in February and came in August when the machine wasn't working. In September the Wrights told him he should return without delay. He reached on Tuesday, September the 20th, 1904, where only Root, the Wrights and Charlie Taylor were there. The plane didn't rise more than 25 feet, but Root was so impressed he reported that the technology may rank as only equaled in recent years by the telephone and wireless telegraphy. The article appeared in January 1905, but there was no interest from the US government or the press. Across the Atlantic, though, there was far more interest. John Edward of the British Army came and tried to buy the technology from them. As patriotic Americans, they wouldn't sell to a foreign power. This still pre-First World War America, where Britain was still seen as a primary adversary, and not Germany. When the Wrights contacted the US government, they received a rejection letter for any money despite not asking for any. The US government wanted to see practical use. They began work on the Flyer 3, 
which was to be the first plane of practical utility in 1905. The Fly 3 had 25 horsepower and many marginal gains were made. If the plane only had made small marginal gains to its designs, there was a remarkable increase in its flying ability. Wilder flew 11 miles, then Orville flew 12 and then 15. This was the flying machine people wanted. They invited friends and family to watch. On October 5th, 1905, Wilbur circled the pasture 29 times and only landed when he ran out of fuel. Wilbur flew an astonishing 24 miles in 38 minutes, longer than all the 160 flights of the previous three years combined. Finally, the press were getting interested. The Wrights reported they were making sensational flights, and yet still the US government wasn't interested in the plane. But many others were. The progress with the British War Office never led anywhere, but the French moved quickly. $200,000 for one flying machine which was demonstrated to work, while $5,000 would be deposited in a New York bank in escrow. That alone would more than cover all their expenses. The French made contact with the Wrights, and the negotiations were intense, while Alberto Santos Dumont, too, began to make progress. No doubt a lot of the work was based from previously published Wright Brothers statistics. Chanute reported Santos Dumont was at about 1904 Wright levels of flying, having previously flown a motor-powered vehicle 726 feet. Slowly, however, the world began to recognise the Wrights. Scientific American published eyewitness testimony as more offers started to fly in, first from a defence contractor in New York, and then a German firm who wanted a right to come over to prove they had flown. So Wilbur set off. In Paris, Wilbur found himself something of a celebrity. At a balloon race in Paris, with Gustave Eiffel in attendance, it was Wilbur who drew the most interest. It became clear that only a public demonstration would solve any issues of European scepticism about their ability to fly. In the meanwhile, French aviation was starting to get to where the Wright brothers were with Flyer 1 or Flyer 2. The French were convinced they were leading the world in aviation. In 1908, the Wrights finally sold the Flyer to the US War Department for $25,000 and signed an agreement with a French company on the understanding that a public demonstration would follow soon. Following this, the brothers went back to Kitty Hawk to reacquaint themselves with the flyer. It had now been two and a half years since either of them had flown it. After a false story appearing about Wilbur, saying he had made a ten-mile flight, the reporters flocked to Kitty Hawk. However, a crash at 50 miles per hour damaged the plane, but Wilbur somehow was not seriously injured. The test proved one thing though, they were now a sensation, though still no major public demonstration had been made, so they decided to go to France. They went to Le Mans, an ancient town of 65,000, with a famed automobile history already, as they were told there was plenty of flat land there. On the eighth day of the eighth month of the eighth year of the 20th century, word got around the Wrights were finally planning to fly. Around the Le Mans racetrack, Families gathered with picnics, gentlemen from the Aéroclub de France, and numerous other aviation luminaries were in attendance, where many were sceptical of the rights. At 6.30pm, Wilbur, after checking everything, said he was going to fly. 
He swept into the air and flew away from the grandstand before banking and coming around. He landed 50 feet from where he had taken off and covered two miles in under two minutes. The crowd was ecstatic and shouted and cheered for him. The crowd said Wilbur had conquered the air and he was treated like he'd saved them from relegation from the Premier League as they all ran onto the field to try and touch and get a piece of Wilbur Wright. In 24 hours, the news went around the world. When the brothers demonstrated it two days later, it drew 2,000 watchers and deflated pretty much the entirety of the French aviation pioneers. In just a few days, the doubts of the French had entirely dissipated. The most popular Americans in France since Franklin, Wilbur was called. After France, Orville went to Fort Myer to demonstrate it in their first public demonstration in the United States, this time in front of the army. Orville crushed again, but was unhurt. The next day he flew for three miles. Then, in another test, he flew for just under an hour. When this filtered back to Washington, and the news went around that he might fly again that very evening, the offices of Washington, D.C. closed, with everything from congressmen officials, military personnel, embassy staff, and anybody else you could think of getting on a train to come and watch. When the brothers finally returned to Dayton, they were treated like heroes they should have been four years ago. 5,000 people encircled the parade ground, and rumours went around they would take President Roosevelt up in a plane too. Two years previously, he had gone down in a submarine. What made the Wright brothers so successful? They had an innate talent when it came to problem solving, and a dedication unlike that of any other of the gentlemen engineers that had tried to solve the problem. But they also managed to identify the right problems. They chose a simple design, whereas others had confusing battle bird-shaped designs. Their technological minimalism helped on cost and streamlined design. While they identified the right problem to focus on, control. Others were focusing on improving lift or power. They focused on getting control. We'll end that discussion of the rights there, but little could they imagine that their flight demonstration in France would be the last great advance America would make in aviation technology for about 40 years. The Wrights invented and perfected the first generation of plane, but not the second. The French saw the Wright plane, and it inspired them to make the next great leaps in aviation. The Wright plane was the French Sputnik moment, and saw France take the lead. That the French caught up and surpassed the Wrights was shown with the 1908 Premier Saône de la Aeronautique, held at the end of 1908, which attracted 100,000 people and showed off all that French aeronautics had to offer. Many designs were shown off at the exhibition. Its success was measured by the fact that the automobile equivalent of the exhibition earned six times less money than the aeroplane version. As one British reporter from the new magazine Flight reported, quote, although these are the earliest of days, it is impossible to ignore the fact that the flying industry is already born. Close quotes. One of the indicators that aeronautics had come back to Europe was that the science and technology base for research, like laboratories, either public or private sector, proliferated across Europe from Britain to Russia. The reasons for European interest was worry about being left behind by the United States, and national security concerns with other European countries and the increasing tensions in the first decade of the 20th century. 
How quickly Europe pulled away from America would not be seen in years, but merely months. When Lord Northcliffe offered £1,000 for the first person to fly across the Channel, Wilbur was fascinated, but Orville declined. It was left to Hubert Latham and Louis Blareau to complete. Both set up near Calais. The French Navy had two destroyers for search and rescue, while the British also had a small craft on standby. The Daily Mail set up a Marconi wireless station nearby to provide weather information. The first link between wireless communication and aviation was also completed then. Latham tried, but failed a few miles from the French coast, while Blareau had more confidence. He'd already won several prizes for flying and worked out a route with several friends. The cliffs of Dover were a major hurdle, with the plane not normally going over 150 feet in the air. On the 25th of July, at 4.41am, Blareau left the ground. He soared 40 miles per hour at 250 feet. Despite the wings picking up and a heavy landing, he managed to land at 5.18. It was a 37-minute flight. The Daily Mail proclaimed, quote-unquote, England is no longer an island, something the paper would spend the next 110 years vociferously trying to change. Blareau was showered with compliments and a crowd of 100,000 back in Paris. The other impact it had was that Blareau's company, which designed the plane he flew in, got 100 orders for his little monoplane. Late 1909 was the first international flying festival with various prizes, but the one for the greatest non-stop distance was won by Henry Farm with a 180km flight. Another prize for the fastest was won by Glenn Curtis for his 75 kilometers an hour flight. The festival was held in Reims and was a monumental development in the conception of the plane. Lloyds of London issued its first aviation policy in 1911 and military officers began to think about the plane for military purposes. Such was the development of the plane by now that the Wrights were suddenly not able to keep up with the development of the plane in France and the rest of Europe. In 1909, the most obvious flaws in the aeroplane had been fixed, and the aeroplane left its invention phase and entered what Richard Hallion called the continual refinement stage. Something like smartphones during the 2010s, where there aren't really many huge leaps them having been made in 2008, but slow and gradual development that you might not notice instantly, but would over a 10-year period. At this stage in the aeroplane, it's about 2011 or 2012 smartphone era. After only three years, aviation spread to Europe, Russia and some parts of Asia. And during the pre-war years, there were national campaigns in Britain not to be left behind. While the Prussian War Ministry in Germany were pressuring the industry to start developing their own planes. Germany faced a harder challenge due to the presence of the Zeppelin airship that still held much stall in public consciousness. Prospects of the use of aviation for war began in 1899, with the Hague Conference on Peace, which imagined a future with submarine and balloon warfare. H.G. Wells' 1908 novel, The War in the Air, talked of a world with flight, with Wells speculating about Germany launching a surprise attack with airships. Maritime aviation began in France in 1910, with the world's first seaplane while France's first aircraft carrier was a converted destroyer and launched in 1912. From 1910, armies began to experiment with the plane. 
The first use of the plane in war took place in 1911, with Italy launching an ultimatum to Ottoman Turkey over the supposed mistreatment of their citizens. Italy actually wanted Tripoli for themselves, and so launched a small force of 11 pilots and 30 men to support the main infantry. On October 23, 1911, Captain Carlos Piazza launched the first aerial reconnaissance by an aeroplane, and four months later he would use an actual camera. In March 1912, airships began aerial bombardments, and although these missions were only a footnote, it drew a lot of attention from military planners all around the world. These planes had many different uses, both on land and at sea. From 1912, Europe cemented itself as the aviation leader. The plane was constantly reinvented and tinkered with. Only a few years before, aviation was new. Now it was a secure, growing industry. French pilots were cut above their European brethren, winning aviation contests constantly. In just five years, the challenging competition went from racing 12.4 miles to racing 124 miles, with speeds improving by three times during this period. Jules Verdran, a Parisian socialist, then went 90 and then 100 miles per hour, being the first person to break that mark. French pilots subsequently called 1913 the glorious year, with Roland Garros, yes, the French tennis open stadium complex is named after him, setting a new altitude record of 18,400 feet. This compared to the barely 100 feet planes would get up to in 1908. Garros then flew 453 miles across the Mediterranean in just 8 hours. In 1913, the plane flew over 200 kilometers per hour. More advancements took place in 1914, with a record for the most people flown in one flight, 16 passengers and one dog. While also in 1914, William Boeing bought himself a seaplane, but then decided to build his own in Seattle. Its location near the Pacific made it perfect to get raw supplies, and by the 1920s, he was building most types of plane for use in the United States. With the outbreak of war in 1914, aviation developments would be focused on only one area, the warplane. The principal role of the aircraft was to support armies in the trenches. Millions of men were deployed, but only just over 400 aircraft. Aircraft would be used to carry people over the countryside to report on troop movements. In the first few months of the war, there was a lot of movement. On the 29th of August, a German pilot flew around the Eiffel Tower and dropped a bomb on Paris. From 1915, photos replaced sketches in the air for reconnaissance missions. As the war settled into trenches, planes were used to show where the heavy artillery shells were landing. While there was a slow turn to putting arms on planes themselves, but in 1914 the planes were too light to carry heavy guns. By 1916 this had largely been sold and aircraft started to be used more and more, with French company Nieport reporting an increase in sales from 285,000 francs in 1914 to 26.4 million in 1916. The war on the air proved brutal for planes, as small improvements could have large implications meaning the plane development soon became utterly Darwinian, in which the worst planes had to constantly be reinvented. The fighter pilots of the First World War is perhaps one of the most interesting subplots of the war. They carried supplies to the home front and were easy heroes in an era in which there were no great generals 
or fantastic military campaigns. In the First World War, the number of people in the aviation industry between 1914 and 1918 grew from a few hundred to 350,000. But I'm going to skip over most of the First World War, so we can get to what is called the Golden Age of Aviation. Nobody in 1918 would have thought it might be a Golden Age, with post-war countries awash with unused aircraft and demand collapsing. There were only 300 planes made in the US in 1920, with some European craft being turned into furniture or pots and pans. There were small areas where the aviation industry was booming. Hollywood had a constant need for stunt pilots, and the circus industry too, where aviation spectaculars were always popular. Aviation, however, had been greatly improved by the war, and just by the fact that four years in, aviation at this time was a great deal. There was a paradigm shift between what people were now impressed with. Nobody was now impressed by flying between cities. After the war, aviation prizes for feats came back, but the scale was changed. Mediterranean routes were targeted, firstly, for commercial flights, but the next challenge was to cross oceans. The obvious target was the Atlantic Ocean. In 1919, three US planes flew via aircraft carriers and the Azores, but this was non-stop. Lord Northcliffe had put up a prize for the first crossing, but it went unclaimed. In 1919, the Australian government put up a prize for the first flight from Britain to Australia, and it was won by another pair of brothers, Ross and Keith Smith, who managed it in 27 days. After the First World War, there were many firsts and experimental flights all across the world. In the 1920s, airmail started to be used in the United States. Airmail pilots were an elite group having to fly over hospitable terrain, but governments subsidised them in an attempt to develop infrastructure. French pilots were the first, with airmail flights during the 1920s going between Casablanca, Dakar, and then Dakar to South America. US airmail launched in 1919, with the first service from New York to Cleveland and then to Chicago, and then over the Rocky Mountains to Salt Lake City and San Francisco. By 1926, the US had a strong structure of airmail, but it was still risky business. Risky enough to tempt an aviation enthusiast to join. Born in 1902, just as the Wright brothers were experimenting, to a man who would later be a congressman, and one of the few congressmen who opposed US entry into the First World War, and a chemistry teacher mother. Charles Augustus Lindbergh enrolled in the College of Engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but dropped out, saying he had not been a good student. He took a while out and wrote to flying schools. Lindbergh's friends tried to tempt him out of it, but he didn't heed their advice. Lindbergh went off to the Nebraska Aircraft Corporation where they trained for flying, building, planes, maintenance, and every other aspect of aviation. His parents thought he'd flunked out of college and was looking for a backup, which, to be fair, he was. A week into his studies and he was a passenger, and 15 minutes in the plane had him hooked. But he couldn't post a bond for a solo flight, so had to wait another six months later to May 1923. Lindbergh purchased his own plane with money from odd jobs for $500, and went non-stop barnstorming, that's performing tricks and stunts. After a few months of that, he began a year's military training with the US Army Air Service. Despite a poor academic record, he excelled at military school, and other than a pretty bad crash, 
He graduated on the 14th of May 1925. Lieutenant Lindbergh looked for what to do next. He headed for St. Louis and took another break out to fly around Colorado, exploring the effects of air currents around the canyons and turbulence. By October 1925, the US government was starting to award airmail contracts, and Lindbergh was employed to survey routes and arrange for landing and emergency fields along the way. Lindbergh was never happy with this mundane job in the era of expanding possibilities. There had been circumnavigations and many long plane journeys, one involving US Commander Richard Evelyn Byrd, who wanted two co-pilots to accompany him as he flew over the North Pole. Lindbergh applied, but didn't get it. So Lindbergh settled into his job, still doing things many of us would have considered brave, but for him now was run of the mill. Lindbergh became the poster boy for the airmail service and appeared in ads in the Chamber of Commerce luncheons telling small businesses how valuable airmail could be for them. Lindbergh was still dreaming of doing something extraordinary. First he wanted to fly to New York and then he dreamed of flying from New York to Paris. Transatlantic flights were not new. John Alcock and Arthur Brown had done Newfoundland to Ireland in 1919. But when Raymond Ortigue was approached by Augustus Post, the secretary of the Aero Club of America, putting up $25,000 as an award for the first transatlantic flight in 1919. This prize expired after five years, but had no serious attempts, so it was now extended, this time without a time limit. This time there were more attempts, with René Fonck, France's best-known flying ace, giving it a go. But the plane never took off and crashed just after takeoff. Two others died over the Atlantic. Lindbergh thought he could do it, but needed the money. When Lindbergh approached businessmen for money, they were shocked that he didn't want either a seaplane or a three-engine plane, but he said they would both use too much fuel. In the meantime, there were many who were still trying, but the elusive crossing still remained. Lindbergh got a bank loan for the flight, so then had to try and get the right plane. He listed downloads of equipment, maps and information he would need, as well as mailing plane manufacturers and the small Ryan Aircraft Company getting back to him, saying they could build a plane that could do it. So Lindbergh went to San Diego, a new settlement in California, and found the Ryan factory was just an old warehouse, but everything inside looked right. As they planned the trip, they didn't know the exact distance from New York to Paris, and so Lindbergh got out a piece of string at the globe and measured it against the scale. They guessed at 3,600 miles, at 10% of the reserve, and they estimated they would need 400 gallons of gasoline. Lindbergh signed the order for his plane on the 25th of February, 1927. By this point, the amount of attempts were beginning to mount up, and many more were in the pipeline. In April, Lindbergh got the plane delivered, and his entry for the prize was accepted. He had only 60 days to start his flight, and was already planning what he would do if somebody beat him to the prize. He could do Hawaii to Australia, for example. April saw Lindbergh's three main rivals all crash or have their planes break. Lindbergh gave his plane 10 days worth of test drives, totaling 23 test flights. On the 4th of May, he performed nine time trials, on the plane testing speed and load with different amounts of gas inside. He reported back to his mother that the test flight ran above the theoretical performance. Rumours went around that he'd been training himself to stay awake 
by walking around San Diego, but all he really did was occasionally fly at night. Then from nowhere, two French pilots were reported as going to New York in their attempt to get ready to fly the route. They did indeed go to New York, but their plane never got there. Despite attempts to get Lindbergh to depart from St. Louis in celebration, he knew that in a few days it might see somebody else take the first flight. Bad weather was leaving the East Coast, and so on May the 10th he packed a bag and left the Ryan factory and left the West Coast. He travelled at night so to get more used to flying during the dark, and called his plane the Spirit of St. Louis, after his backers. When he landed at Curtis Field on Long Island, he crossed the US in 24 hours, which was a record in itself. He was greeted by hundreds and met by journalists too, who had suddenly gotten interested in the attempt. He went to a nearby hotel and the news of his arrival forced his competition into action. Lindbergh still had things to do. He had to go to the New York Passport Agency to get a passport. He got one on the spot. And then he checked the weather reports which told him to take in more southerly route to follow the shipping line. Rain returned a little, delaying his takeoff. After taking a day off due to soggy weather, on the morning of the 20th of May 1927, the spirit was full with 451 gallons of gasoline, weighing 2,750 pounds. He took only five sandwiches with him, telling a reporter that if he got to Paris, he, quote, won't need any more. And if I don't get to Paris, I won't need any more either." Close quotes. At 7.40 Lindbergh approached his plane and boarded it. There was still a slight tailwind. The humid air meant the plane was covered to protect it from a cold sweat, and the horizon held a mist for him. But at 7.51 he did his belt, put cotton in each ear, pulled on his goggles, and for one of the first times in history, the Fox Film Corporation had a brand new stand-on film camera covering the event. At 7.54 the plane was airborne, and two minutes later it was at 200 feet, travelling 100 miles per hour. He flew low over Long Island, as the French arranged for a big light at Cherbourg to guide Lindbergh inland from the French coast. The main risks of the flight was that the plane wouldn't take off with all that fuel, and of engine failure with 36 hours of operation continuously. After an hour he flew over the Connecticut River, as he approached Nova Scotia, he looked towards the Atlantic. He would be faced by hundreds of miles of directionless travel. He told himself that if Nova Scotia was covered in fog, he would turn back. It was for the first 15 minutes, but after that, he was clear. Six hours in, he approached the Atlantic, and the waves were almost hypnotic as he flew. Wave after wave, and his eyes just wanted to sleep, but he had to keep them open. The blue waves soon changed colour as he approached a sea full of ice. The glare kept him awake. He diverted his plane over the small city of St. John's, as it was the last city before he would reach Ireland. He flew so low over it that a merchant was able to read the serial number on the underwing. He wanted people to know he had made it that far at least. For the next 15 hours there was no news at all as he flew over the ocean. He was at 10,000 feet and flying over the fog. He was the highest human on the planet, and all alone. Millions across the US were now praying for him as he flew. The event seemed to capture the imagination of a nation that is usually reserved for moon landings or World Cup finals. A famous humorist in New Hampshire refused to write a column simply saying, no jokes today. During a prize boxing match, the biggest cheer of the night was when a rumour was read out on the loudspeaker 
that Lindbergh was safe. As Lindbergh reached his 14th hour at 10,000 feet, he was in the clouds in the freezing cold cockpit. He finally cleared the ice and was halfway there. At his 17th hour of flight and the 40th he had been awake, he was a mess. Cold, hungry and had drunk less than a pint. He nearly couldn't move and was losing control of his eyelids. Over the next three hours daylight returned and so did the fog. He flew and flew, no real idea of where he was. He couldn't work it out either, there were too many variables and he was too cold. He flew some more and realised he'd been flying for 25 miles. Then he saw some boats. He even flew down and shouted which way to Ireland, to which there was no response. He estimated another two and a half hours before he would see land. But then he saw coastline. He placed a map of Ireland down on the coast and realised it was Dingle Bay on the southern coast of Ireland. After 28 hours of flying, he was only three miles off course. Back in America, it was day, and it was breaking news that Lindbergh had been spotted. With each edition of the New York Times, there were mobs trying to get the papers, while the officers received 10,000 calls during the day. He passed over St. George's Channel, weirdly named since St. George is the English patron saint, and the channel is between Ireland and South Wales. But anyway, he had a slight thought, having seen his fuel situation of flying over Paris and onto Milan. He thought of the Mayflower, which took two months to reach America, which departed from Plymouth. But as he flew over Plymouth on the southern coast of England, it had only taken him 30 hours. He crossed the channel in no time and was now in France. He had made the first non-stop airplane flight between the mainland continents of Europe and America. He reached Deauville, meaning he had now the world record for the longest flight, and as he reached the Seine, he took his first food since leaving the Americas. Lights flashed in the distance with air beacons lighting the way to Paris. He circled above the Eiffel Tower and headed northeast to the London site. He circled the runway seven times, lowering himself each time, and landed at 10.24pm Parisian time. 33 hours and 30 minutes since takeoff, and he looked out to see 150,000 people in the airfield. The reaction was immense. Everybody was in pandemonium, with soldiers and police not able to stem the tide. He was shoved into the back of a Renault and whisked away. He went to the Place de l'Opera, where crowds had been dancing for hours, and his first stop was the tomb of the unknown soldier. He went to the French ambassador's house, whose streets were filled with reporters. Lindbergh had sold his story to the New York Times, but after some debate it was decided in today's historic moment that the Lindbergh story was for humanity. Every paper could carry the interview. After seven questions, the ambassador kicked the journalists out to give Lindbergh his first sleep in 63 hours. When news was posted in front of the New York Times building that he had landed, there was cheering and horn blasts. The police and fire trucks turned their sirens on, Broadway performances were interrupted to announce the news. Children all over the country were called Charles. The French Foreign Office flew the American flag, the first time it had ever flown another country's flag. The French president gave him the Légion d'honneur. When Lindbergh got back to the US, New York offered him with a ticker tape parade and gave him the Medal of Honor. He was later given Times Magazine first Man of the Year award later renamed Person of the Year. 
It's also worth mentioning Amelia Earhart, the first woman to do the same as Lindbergh. She did the same route as Lindbergh in 32 hours, and then in 35 hours flew from Hawaii to California. A later round-the-world flight from California reached New Guinea, but when she took off the Howland Island in Guinea, she was never found again. The interwar years also brought the first commercial air flights. The first commercial airline was in 1919, between London and Paris. The cockpit was open and passengers had to wear protective clothing. It was about £42 return, about six months average pay in Britain. However, commercial air flight wasn't really going to make huge strides in Europe. The train service was effective, and once you'd gotten to and back from the aerodrome, you didn't really save much time. Air travel was all about the novelty. Nevertheless, the aviation industry was so much more advanced in Europe that commercial air flight still got a head start. Germany was the initial leader, with Lufthansa holding 40% of world air passengers by the mid-1920s. The German lead prompted many European countries to found their own national airline. The flag carrier of the Netherlands, KLM, was hugely successful and by 1929 had the longest regular flight, from the Netherlands to Jakarta, taking eight days. In 1925, the first in-flight movie was shown on a Lufthansa flight. A silent movie played on a big screen at the front of the flight. And it's probably a good thing it was silent, because the noise of the planes at the time meant it was unlikely you would have heard anything anyway. So why did the US not take off, so to speak, with passenger flights right away? The continental expanse was perfect for it. The answer is culture and investment. It's partly because air flight was a bit of a novelty. People didn't take it seriously as a form of travel. Furthermore, the US government didn't back aviation like in Europe, where there were overarching defence worries. Yet, the Lindbergh flight resulted in a surge of enthusiasm throughout the country. Flights suddenly began to flourish after a couple of false dawns in the early 1930s, once infrastructure had grown somewhat to allow navigation between the big cities, especially at night. In 1930, air traffic control grew as airports became busier. A small holy grail was the New York to LA overnight sleeper, and in 1935, the Douglas Sleeper Transport entered service as the DC-3 to become one of the most important planes in aviation history. Advances in radio navigation meant that the planes were becoming ever more reliable, with round-the-clock flights now available resulting in the prices falling and more investment into the industry. By the late 1930s, there were heated cabins, soundproofing to reduce noise and padded seats. But flying still wasn't enjoyable. Turbulence was a common issue, affecting many planes. And so the only solution would be to fly above the turbulence, into the stratosphere. Boeing developed the first aeroplane capable of operating at that height, with a pressurised cabin meaning that the plane by the end of the 1930s was a very normal transport option and a very rapidly advancing one too. The 1920s saw the first theoretical work about the aviation industry at war. Julio de Hetz, the commander of the air published in 1921, was highly influential with many of the leading figures in military aviation. It argued that armies and navies would soon only be relevant as defensive forces while large bombers delivered huge attacks on enemy cities and industrial centres. Since civilian morale would crack almost at once, 
there would be little loss of life, or so the theory went. Despite the lack of investment in military aviation after the First World War and during the interwar period, the period did see some use of aviation for military purposes, with Britain bombing rebels in Iraq, wherever I heard that before, and it being seen as a great success. The use of aircraft in aviation gave European powers a greater, if that's possible, sense of superiority over the primitive peoples. For Mussolini, it was aviation that signalled Italy's resurgence as a great power, while Germany, banned from having an air force by the Treaty of Versailles, yearned for an air force, and through investment in civil aviation, made sure it wasn't too far behind. American military aviation was almost non-existent, with such an isolationist street and no foreign entanglements. The first aircraft carriers were launched in the early 1920s in Britain, and in 1924 HMS Eagle was supposedly an island with a flight deck, setting the template for most future aircraft carriers. In 1933 Hitler rose to power and began rearmament. In 1939 Germany's aircraft production was 800% higher than in 1933. The attack on Guernica was the first demonstration of Germany's terrifying new aircraft. In combination with the tank, it destroyed the town in just a few hours. Theories of the plane was of course going to change. Another major event that precipitated this thought was the 1937 Japanese invasion of China. The Roosevelt administration almost instantly increased funds for long-range bombers, reasoning that the best way to stop an enemy bomber was to have one yourself to deter them. Mutually assured destruction before mutually assured destruction. On September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland with 2,000 aircraft. Germany's advantage wasn't really due to their planes, which weren't as good as many thought, and their pilots who weren't as ruthless as stereotypes might have you believe. German dominance in the early years of the war was down to sheer superiority of numbers. The Battle of France made a huge impact on the confidence of the Allies. The Allies' airstrips were bombed from the outset, and from the Germans, who were more aware of the concept of concentration of forces. The German planes weren't as good as many thought, but the Allied planes were worse, especially in the early part of the war. I'm not going to get too bogged down in military aviation, but I can't really do a history of the aeroplane and being British, and not mention the Spitfire. So Spitfire, there, I've mentioned it. By late 1931, the war had gone global, and American mass production started to show even by 1942, as US output boomed. By the end of the war, German and Japanese air defences had been overwhelmed by Allied power. Throughout the war, the US managed to build 300,000 planes. For civilian aircraft, the war had shown one thing. The jet engine was coming. It didn't see huge use during the war, but it was obvious to all that the jet engine was going to hold the future. The jet engine is a reaction engine that discharges a fast-moving jet that generates thrust by jet propulsion. Jet flight and the Cold War struggle was another one of these industries that fueled each other. The late 1940s and early 1950s saw the pushing of human engineering capability to develop faster and faster planes so humans could move ever quicker. With the development of the jet engine, it was speculated that the sound barrier might even be broken. The history of air flight is a list of these great markers. The first flight, the first heavier-than-air flight, the first transatlantic crossing, and now it was achieving Mach 1. 
Nobody had ever flown faster than sound. Some World War II pilots reported getting close and meeting violent turbulence, and one resulted in a loss of control of the plane, but nobody had yet broken the barrier. On the 14th of October 1947, the Bell X-1, flown by Chuck Yeager, was due to fly. Two days earlier he'd broken a rib, falling off a horse, but he was determined to make this attempt. He got into the cockpit, which he reported as agonising. He got into the plane and started to fly. He reached 0.88 mark, and the X-1 began to shake. This was nothing new, but he continued to go faster and faster. At 42,000 feet he was still gathering speed, but as he went fast he noticed the ride was starting to smooth out. Then at Mach 0.965 the speed started to tip off the scale and Yeager was going faster than any human before. The sound barrier had been broken with almost no fuss at all. But this showed one thing, the aviation industry had started to shift once again back to the United States. Commercial air flight resumed after the Second World War, and with the addition of the jet engine, it made for more availability for transatlantic commercial flights. It took until 1957 for the number of flyers to exceed the amount of people travelling over the Atlantic by sea. By 1956, the Lockheed 1649 was travelling from LA to London in just 19 hours. In the 1950s, Boeing was known largely for military aeroplanes. But the launch of the Boeing 707 in 1958, flying the Pan Am routes from New York to Paris or London, was really the first feasible commercial jet liner, mostly because it flew at twice the speed of other planes. The 707 took jet air travel to a whole new level. They were worried that this new speed would lead to overcapacity of flight, but jet travel resulted in large-scale take-up of commercial air travel. The Pan Am boss once said, quote, In one fell swoop, we have shrunken the world. Close quotes. There was glamour to the jet set, a new social class, partying until the morning in New York, continuing in the air, and then by next afternoon, you're in London. The next Boeing development is perhaps the most famous model of any aeroplane in history, the 747. It doubled the passenger capacity of any other jet airliner and Pan Am gambled by ordering 25 before they'd even been made, giving Boeing the financial capacity to develop it. Boeing built the largest building in the world at the time to make the plane, and after much outsourcing and ingenuity in cutting weight, it entered service in January 1970. Lockheed were never able to keep up. They would have to stick to the defence industry, while Boeing would have to wait for the re-emergence of European aviation to find a competitor in Airbus. Even with the entry of the 747, it was still generally assumed that supersonic airliners would be the future. The 747 was even designed so it could be converted into a freight hauler after the entry of supersonic airliners to try and preempt what was seen as the next natural development. Speed of planes had generally increased since the 1930s and it just seemed natural for the progression to be supersonic travel. But the Holy Grail proved more problematic than people thought. There were three main projects, the Anglo-French Concorde, the Soviet Tupolev Tu-144 and the Boeing 2707. Concorde and the Soviet projects got off quickly, but the Americans were aiming for a speed of 2,000 miles per hour, Mach 3, while the others were settling with Mach 2. So the last big story 
in the story of aviation will be that of Concorde. The last great advance of the aviation industry dates to a time when the Beatles were still together. Manchester United were champions of Europe, England were the reigning football world champions, and Richard Nixon had just been inaugurated. Basically, a long time ago. No doubt there have been innovations and new designs since. But how many kids growing up have pictures of slightly more efficient planes and engines on their wall? More efficiency and longer range has greatly improved the aviation industry, but Concorde remains the greatest flying machine ever put into the air. So if you're listening, Elon Musk, couldn't you make a rechargeable Concorde and solve the aviation industry's stagnation? Ernst Mach was an Austrian physicist, 1838 to 1916, and he observed that airflows obeyed different laws as they approached the speed of sound, and so people named the speed of sound after him. The Mach number of a moving body is the ratio of its speed to that of sound. When an object travels at the same speed as sound, it is listed at Mach 1. An aircraft in flight can travel below the speed of sound, called subsonic or supersonic, which is above the speed of sound. Due to the vagaries of air and physics, from Mach 0.75 to Mach 1.3, it's more accurate to call it transonic as both sub and supersonic flight are present. The reason that something can be both sub and supersonic is that an aircraft in flight separates air. The airflow over the sticky out parts have to travel further than the other parts, meaning it changes how the plane relates to the air depending on which part of the plane you're looking at. To travel supersonic is not a speed, it's compared to the reaction of the air. Generally, to go supersonic, you have to go at Mach 1.3, which is when all the air around the plane is supersonic. Once Mach 1 has been reached, a compression wave of the air reverts it to the original condition, having been reduced to a lower pressure due to the passage of the aircraft. The shock is twofold, meaning a double boom can often be heard. So, as any British man in his 60s in a pub will tell you after a few pints, the British invented the jet engine and actually did much work on it during the war. British experiments were so far-reaching, they even got a Spitfire to reach 40,000 feet during the war. Britain, however, was broke after the war. If the British government had money, it may have developed the commercial jet airliner. But they left it to the Americans. By the early 1950s, there was much talk of supersonic people transporters. It would reduce the London to LA time from 18 hours to a fifth of what it otherwise would be. Britain at this time was still capable of great pieces of bespoke engineering, with the airspeed record being broken by Peter Twist, hitting 1,132 mph, beating the record at the time by 310 mph. The benefits of a Rolls-Royce engine. In November 1956, the new Supersonic Transport Aircraft Committee heard evidence about the possibilities for commercial supersonic transport. The committee met regularly until March 1959, and it recommended a long-range SST, that's supersonic transport. The recommendation was highly specific, a 150 carrying capability of cruising speed no lower than 1.8 Mach. Following the recommendations, this was followed up by a report to the Ministry of Defence, who, after various feasibility studies, convinced themselves it was possible. But there was one problem. Britain did not have the money. They desired a European partner as they hoped it might pave the way for entry into the common market 
and to split the costs. A partnership with an American company was considered, but Americans wanted something that would go with Mach 3, which had been ruled out by the British for creating too much heat. The only European country capable of building it was France, who had rebuilt its aviation industry at the end of the war. France too had been experimenting with supersonic flight, so it felt for the British a natural fit. The British Minister for Aviation met the French Minister for Transport in 1961, and it resulted in a firm directive to solve any differences and get going. When noted arsehole Charles de Gaulle came to power in 1962, he further pushed the development of the proposal as a way to improve the French aircraft industry. Meanwhile, the Americans became concerned at the progress made in Europe by SSTs. In 1962, an official agreement was reached by Britain and France. Development costs were put at 150 to 170 million pounds, with both countries taking the lead on various parts of the design. Despite American pressure to end the experiments, Britain did not heed the calls, and Concorde development continued. Much experimenting went into designing Concorde, as you can imagine. It got quite technical. Things like the conic nose and its slimline design all had to be designed from scratch. And working with the French was never easy, and neither was the naming of the project. And rather than tell you about it, I'll let the classic BBC sitcom, Yes Prime Minister, explain it for you. Humphrey, we've got to discuss this publicity ceremony for the start of work on the Channel Tunnel. Ah, uh, yes. The Foreign Office is stalling again. Well, they say the heads of agreements still haven't been finalised. Well, it's about time they were. Mm -hmm. A big occasion, the inauguration of the Great Gates, laying of the Foundation Stone by the Prime Minister, the Right Honourable James Hacker, and this historic link between our two great sovereign democracies. Great coverage. But uh, the FO haven't agreed everything with the French. Yes, well, I've decided the only solution is for me to have a summit meeting with the French president and sort it out myself. <laughs> I had no idea that you were considering such a stimulating approach. Well, I am. Prime Minister, do you believe that you personally are capable of concluding this negotiation with the French? Well, it shouldn't be too difficult. What are the outstanding points at issue? Well, mainly they're concerned with sovereignty. Where do you believe the frontier should be? Frontier? Frontier between Britain and France. Well, what's wrong with wherever it is now? Three-mile <laughs> limit. Who would own the middle of the tunnel? Um, you see, the British position is that we should own half each. Yeah, that seems fair. Yes, well, the only thing is the French don't think it's fair. They want the frontier to be at Dover. Oh, that's ridiculous. And uh, who would have sovereignty over the trains? Uh, you see, if a crime was committed on a French train in the British sector, who would have jurisdiction, the British or the French? Well, the British. Well, no, the French. No, the British. <laughs> and um, if a body was pushed out of a British train in the French sector, who would have jurisdiction? Well, the French. Um, no, the British. Um, <laughs> you see, if a British lorry was loaded onto a French train in the British sector, who would have jurisdiction? Well, the British lorry. The, the British. Or the French. <laughs> could uh, criminal jurisdiction be divided into two legs, home and away? <laughs> Yes, thank you, Bernard. Should we have a frontier post in the middle of the tunnel? Well, yeah. Uh, Halfway no. across? No? No. Or should we have customs and immigration clearance at one end or the other, or both ends? Now, with respect, Humphrey, these are points for the lawyers to discuss at the negotiations. Precisely, Prime Minister, but I 
Thought I heard you say you wanted to handle it yourself. Well, obviously, I don't want to discuss points of abstruse international law. Mm -hmm. I want to get the political point settled. Ah, so sovereignty is not political, I see. How interesting. <laughs> now, about the signs. Now, the French want the signs to be in French first and English second. No, I won't agree to that. Well, you can't have your ceremony until you do. Well, how about French first at the French end and English first at the English end? What about on the trains? Oh, really, Humphrey, does it matter? Well, it matters to the French. What about the menus, French or English? Well, couldn't they be changed halfway over? Uh, the French are adamant. You see, that is why both the British and French Concord are spelt the French way with an E at the end. Don't we ever get our own way with the French? Well, sometimes. When was the last time? Battle of Waterloo, 1815. <laughs> On the 2nd of March, 1969, Andre Turcat was the first to try and fly Concord. Bad weather delayed the flight, but Concorde 001 lined to take off. After seven years of design, it successfully took off. Only a low speed and low altitude takeoff, 35 minutes later it landed and all looked well. Despite these initial flights, it took until 1976 for it to enter commercial flying. It cost £500 million, though still less than the Americans spent on their failed SST. Even by 1976, Critics were saying Concorde was a failure and not going to work on economic ground. I guess they were right. But by then, it was ready for launch. There were other things like sonic booms, passenger getting radiation poisoning from solar flares, pollution, and it being too noisy. These concerns were mostly answered by the manufacturers, who said, statistically, it was still safer to fly with Concorde and cross the road. In January 1976, British Airways and Air France were waiting to take off from Heathrow and Charles de Gaulle Airport to fly to New York, but Concorde wasn't allowed to fly to New York. As Concorde wasn't allowed to fly to New York, early services were to Bahrain and Rio. In February 1976, the US Secretary of Transport gave permission for a 16-month trial period for Concorde to land at JFK in New York and at Washington DC. Concorde first landed at New York on the 19th of October 1976. Despite rumours of a mass protest by anti-SST activists, nothing happened. Had Concorde been allowed to fly to America straight away, there may have been more orders from American airliners, but that, combined with world recession in the late 1970s, halted flights and orders. By 1979, a review was commissioned. It was seen that Concorde was unable to produce a profit. By the end of 1980, there would be no more production. It just wasn't making money. The Conservative government under Thatcher decided that the British government would stop funding to BA, so British Airways would have to fund itself. After a long review process, it was decided in 1984 that British Airways would run Concorde by itself without any government support. Meanwhile, Air France cut its services to Rio, Caracas and Mexico, leaving just the Paris to New York route, which just about made Concorde profitable. BA decided to run Concorde from London to New York, Washington and Miami. Concorde would continue. I can't imagine what it must have been like to fly on Concorde. Perhaps the second greatest piece of civil engineering in the 20th century after the Panama Canal, if you were to count the Apollo program as part military and part civil. It's a design icon and the pinnacle of the aviation industry so far. Its only problem was its expense. In 2000, a return ticket to New York cost £6,000 or $9,000. That's a lot of money just to save a few hours. 
I mean, today I can get a flight from London to New York for just several hundred quid. I might imagine, though, if Concorde was introduced, such is its iconic nature and technological marvel, that in today's economy, people might be more willing to go for it. People talk about wanting experiences. I could imagine people flying to New York just to go on Concorde. For business people, the use of the internet has stopped much need for business travel. But with the rise of Asia and the increase in high net worth individuals, one wonders if China to LA flights or Singapore to Sydney flights might be able to make supersonic flight profitable. But we will have to see. In the same year as Concorde's first experimental flight was the launch of perhaps the other great iconic post-war aeroplane, the Boeing 747 Jumbo Jet, which we touched on earlier, set the standard for the modern aviation industry far more than Concorde. But the introduction of Airbus gave Boeing much needed competition. And as long-haul flights have become easier, tourism took off in the mid-1990s, turning many small tranquil places into tourist hotspots. The proliferation of cheap short-haul flights has brought flying to everybody. You can get across Europe for only a couple days minimum wage salary. Quite an achievement. So where does flying go from here? Has aviation reached the same stage as the railways? where development is slow or expensive, or can flight still excite? Well, supersonic travel no longer seems like the way forward. The problem is both the expense and the noise of the aircraft. But other opportunities abound where just faster and faster planes aren't really the answer. The growth of non-Western nations has shifted the aviation business. Many of the biggest airlines are still in the West, but many are also Arab, Chinese and Turkish. If it wasn't for the Chinese restriction of flights inside China, and the Chinese use of high-speed rail, then China might be even higher up in the aviation industry. As the world hopefully gets wealthier, there will be a shift away from Europe, if things remain the way they are. So the last great innovation in the aviation industry was the Airbus A380. It may have been the boldest project since Concorde, capable of carrying at least 500 passengers, and offering a better saving per customer than other models. But the key future, I think, for the aviation industry is the environmental one. The next major development will be a reduction in the amount of energy it requires for flight. I think electric or hydrogen-powered aviation will have to be the future. We won't stop flying, and nor should we. To get across the world so quickly is an amazing achievement. But the aviation industry needs to look to the future and start thinking about how converting or investing in other energy sources. We've seen how quickly electric motors are catching on with cars, and with planes only flying between airports, it should be a far easier process to convert to other energy sources. If done correctly, it could reduce the cost of flying even further, as power would get even cheaper. You could even put a couple of solar panels on the plane, and as they fly over the clouds, they could charge mid-air. In just over 60 years, humans went from not being able to fly, to being able to fly supersonic with ease. Humans in just over 50 years went from not being able to fly, to landing on the moon. Flight is one of the most incredible things we've ever achieved as a species. Something we wanted to do for millennia, and at such a quick rate that it's almost incomparable. Flying is now something we've taken for granted. Get on board, have a drink, or read a book. Watch the latest mediocre Hollywood comedy drama that has a 55% score on Rotten Tomatoes that you would never watch at any other time, but you can relax for a couple of hours and you fly across the continent. It's almost easy, almost boring. 
We've even begun to hate the process. Airports are hell, with only duty-free and being able to drink alcohol socially acceptable in the morning being the good parts. But back in the 1910s and 20s, it was the wonder of the age. We see it as generic and boring. Flying is the chore, not the exciting part. And that's remarkable when you think about it. Flight has changed so much about how we live. Other continents don't feel as far away as they once did. Need to go to New York is no longer a week-long boat journey. It's a remarkable ability we take for granted, and perhaps shouldn't. Aviation, as its second century progresses, will keep innovating, but we can only guess at where that will be. Perhaps faster, different energy sources. Planes may be 3D printed to allow for quicker R&D, bringing back the age of the rights with huge leap forwards. Perhaps the planes will become drones and completely autonomous, or they'll become small and easy enough to replace the automobile. But one thing is for sure, aviation is not going away anytime soon. And so for the ability flying gives humans, and I hope brings the world closer together, it's listed at number 63 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time. <laughs>